Hello and welcome to the Community Health Podcast powered by Community Therapy, where we talk all things community healthcare. I'm your host, Scott Lynch. How much do you really know about diabetes? What can you do to support people living with diabetes in your care? Well, that's what we're discussing today with our guest, Katie Ray. Katie is an accredited practicing dietitian, supporting adults and people living with disabilities in the community. Thanks for being on, Katie. Thanks for having me. This week is National Diabetes Week, and that's why we're talking about diabetes. And Katie, actually, just before we started recording, presented some interesting information that I wasn't aware of. So um, it's a great time to discuss diabetes. As yesterday, ABC announced a world-first pain-free lickable diabetes test, which has the potential to benefit around 460 million people living with diabetes globally, rendering finger pricks from blood glucose monitors possibly obsolete. I always thought it was an area that could be disrupted, but I'm definitely not skilled enough to think about doing those things, but I can have the great ideas. But look at that from Newcastle University, following 20 years of research by a dedicated team. Even more exciting is that the Australian government has announced $6.3 million in funding to build a specialised manufacturing facility for the test right here in the Hunter region, um, looking to commercialise that by, looks like, the end of 2023 there. How exciting is that? You said that you heard that on the radio out on the field this week? Yeah, um, we just happened to be out visiting clients in the community and had the radio on when the announcement was made and it was just such good timing knowing I was coming here to talk about diabetes. I just think it's such an exciting thing for the Hunter region and, you know, worldwide for everybody with diabetes. But, yeah, as graduates ourselves of Newcastle Uni, um, very proud that that's something that we've invented here at home. Mm, being a little bit conversational and just jump, jumping on that topic is how meaningful is that, that, you know, potentially in the future that someone living with diabetes doesn't have to go through the process of pricking their finger every day? Like, do you find that clinically that that's just something that people really don't like doing? Yeah, it's huge because when you're you're pricking that same area, even doing, you know, rotations as educated um, really well, it actually damages the nerve over time. So, you know, numbness in the fingers from somebody who's been taking that regular monitoring is a pretty major issue. Um, so it's, yeah, really exciting. And, you know, for children and stuff as well, it's going to be a lot easier to take those, um, anyone with disabilities or elderly people, it's a lot less confronting um, not being pricked, obviously. Yeah, it's truly a game changer. Like, yeah, I couldn't believe that when you just said that to me before. But, yeah, how exciting. Keep our eyes peeled for that. So, um, let's move on just to yeah, a bit of an opening question about diabetes. Like everyone knows of the word diabetes, um, but we'll try and dive a little bit deeper here and uh, with the aim of trying to open up people's awareness of no matter what role that you're in, um, making sure that you're helping your organisation or um, team members or people that you're supporting in the community to um, live well with diabetes. So, what is diabetes and why should someone living with diabetes control their blood sugar levels? 
Okay, so diabetes mellitus or diabetes more commonly, it's a serious and complex condition that causes um, high blood sugars. So in a healthy individual, the hormone insulin, which is produced in the pancreas, moves your sugar from blood into cells where it can be stored and then used for energy. With diabetes, though, the body either doesn't make enough insulin or it can't effectively use the insulin that it does make, Mm -hmm. and thus that sugar remains circulating around in the bloodstream. So the insufficiency to kind of correctly clear, store or utilise the blood sugar affects somebody's entire system that's living with diabetes um, and may result in some pretty significant um, complications that really impact their quality of life and it can actually reduce life expectancy and lead to disability. So makes me think like, Often with different types of medical conditions or diabetes, sometimes you associate or society in general associate a disability or medical condition with an age or a gender. Is diabetes associated with a particular age or gender or is it affecting everybody in society? What can we learn there? Diabetes does not discriminate. Absolutely anyone can develop diabetes throughout their life, Um, but there's heaps of supports out there for anyone who does develop diabetes. Um, It's not a situation where it's just one condition. A lot of people don't realise that there are several subtypes of diabetes Um, that are complex and can be quite serious. Uh, The most common ones, obviously, are your type 1, 2 and gestational. Um, I think they're sort of commonly talked about. Just explain gestational for those that may not know. Yeah, so gestational is a type of diabetes that develops during pregnancy. Um, There are certain risk factors of why someone might be more likely for that to happen, but... We've seen women with none of those risk factors also develop gestational diabetes. So usually they require some insulin during the time of pregnancy and then it tends to resolve after the baby's born. Yeah, okay. And um, for those that just a brief summary or um, a difference between type 1 and 2, like what's the difference there? Yeah, so type 1 diabetes, the body doesn't produce insulin um, and usually that's picked up in childhood. Um, That person will need to be using insulin throughout their whole life where we're type 2. Am I right in saying there sometimes that's people that may be living with like an insulin pump and with type 1 diabetes? Now, with our new technology, that's certainly one option. Um, Although, you know, for various reasons, not everyone wants a pump. Um, With type 2, that's usually seen in adults. But what's really been interesting over the last sort of decade or so is more and more it's cropping up in children as well. And it's actually to do with sort of insufficiency so their um, pancreas just isn't functioning properly and not producing enough insulin. Um, Often it's talked about in the context of obesity 
So it's something that um, doctors kind of talk to patients about managing their weight to prevent becoming diabetic and prevent that um, pancreatic insufficiency to begin with. Yeah, okay. And if I'm a health professional out in the community or um, I'm looking to provide some education to a team that I'm supporting, how do we start that conversation around like identifying risk factors or I often find like identifying or being aware of risk factors is a great way to get people thinking about at least identifying the care need. So if we're speaking to someone looking after someone living with a disability or an older adult, just starting to get your mind thinking of risk factors so that you can possibly trigger appropriate referrals or um, identify that, yeah, there possibly is something going on there. What are those things that we should have in our minds when we're thinking about diabetes? Yeah, so there's quite a number of risk factors, but I'm just going to kind of summarise the main ones. Um, Weight, as I've just kind of alluded to, is one of the big ones. Um, Being overweight or obese is a huge risk, um, specifically when we look at fat distribution. So um, we're talking about fat around the abdomen, um, so midsection, rather than, you know, being lower around the hips or the thighs. Um, Usually it's higher in men, which is interesting. So if you're a man with a waist circumference that is above 40 inches or a woman with a measurement above 35, that is a risk factor. Um, Inactivity, which I guess, again, ties in with weight. So when you're very inactive, um, that can contribute. Physical activity actually helps you control use of glucose. So if you're not moving, then you're going to have more glucose for longer circulating in your system, which may increase the sensitivity of cells. Um, Family history is one as well. Um, If, you know, you've got a parent or a sibling who's a diabetic, then your chances of being diabetic go up. Um, Race and ethnicity. So we don't really know why this is, but um, there are several different ethnic uh, ethnical groups, sorry, that are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Uh, blood level lipids. So an increased risk is associated with low levels of high-density lipoprotein or HDL cholesterol, so the good cholesterol and high levels of triglycerides. Um, Age is a factor, so the risk increases as you get older, but more specifically after you're 45. Um, So anyone working in an aged care setting should probably be looking at that because all of your clients are going to be over that age group. We're starting to tick multiple boxes with risk factors sort of colliding. So if you're looking at an older adult, even living in the community as well, so over the age of 45 or typically over the age of 65, um, if we're talking about community aged care programs, but in residential care as well. So you're an older adult, older adult associated with frailty leading to sarcopenia. So you've got less muscle, um, which is like what you've said before, tied with, you know, um, the ability to manage and use glucose and around that sensitivity to insulin. But 
that frailty leading to inactivity, that leading to fat distribution. Like you start to get multiple things colliding, so lots of risk factors where pretty much if you're supporting an older adult, you need to be thinking about diabetes. Yeah, and often when we go out to do initial assessments in the community with these, um, you know, older populations, they've already had at some stage some alert of pre-diabetes. And, you know, we do have to investigate whether that's something ongoing of a concern or was related to, say, you know, a hospital admission where they were acutely unwell and that inflammation caused the rise in blood sugar. But if this is something ongoing, then um, we do need to kind of take pre-diabetes pretty seriously because that's tell me how more about. Tell, I'm going to jump in and be rude, but this. Tell me more about pre-diabetes. I think that's something so actually I need to know more of as well. Yeah, it's a condition where the blood sugar is higher than normal, but not necessarily high enough to be classified as diabetes. If it's left untreated, ongoing, there's a likelihood of progression to become type 2 diabetic. Is that just so, getting picked up by a GP or a practice nurse on a gent? Like, is that part of their normal screening? Yeah, so often it is picked up by the GP as part of just your general annual screen that you would hope your GP is doing in those age groups anyway, not for young people, but certainly for elderly people. They do get screened pretty regularly. Um, and yeah, okay. Find out where it would have been, like I said before, a hospital admission. Is with pre-diabetes, other than that screening, picking up at like blood sugar levels being higher, are there any sort of signs and symptoms that are going to start to develop at that stage? It's pretty individual. Um, some people may have some mild symptoms like um, being excessively thirsty or toileting a little bit often. Um, so perhaps they go and see a nurse related to continence and that triggers getting the blood tests and that's where we would pick it up. Okay, that makes sense. But not just like, a, you know, some things that um, some medical conditions, there's, you know, just straight early signs of things. But um, my knowledge so far that there wasn't for pre-diabetes, so that makes me feel a little bit clinically robust that I didn't yes. have a missing knowledge gap there for pre-diabetes. Um, maybe just jump on to this a little bit because this was an area that I didn't know as much previously. Um more actually around the incontinence um, and like frequency. I remember speaking to you probably, yeah, early on, like um, when you first started with community therapy and, and then I remember it came up in maybe an article that we wrote for the, the website maybe or a social media post and I hadn't thought about diabetes as much in the presence of incontinence or frequency. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think most people probably haven't. Yeah, so when someone's blood sugars are running high, it's very likely that they'll be toileting often and with urgency. So, you know, often people feel embarrassed or shamed that they've become incontinent when actually it's not necessarily the 
weakening of muscles happening, it may be that their um, dietary management is just really out of control. And then once those um, carbohydrates are distributed well, it comes back under control for them. So it is definitely a first line thing, getting the dietitian in there to assess that before just dishing out continence items and, you know, diagnosing someone as incontinent. Yeah, okay. And what sort of things do you actually change there, like in terms of like clinically, like as an intervention, um, what what are you changing for the person in terms of their dietary control to have that effect? I mean, we're looking at the diet as a whole, but really specifically honing in on the carbohydrate distribution, load and timing. So overall throughout the day, we'll calculate the energy that we feel that person requires and then work out how to distribute that in the way to um, just help them manage when the spikes of glucose are going to be, you know, throughout the day. Ideally, we want to keep it. Um, I always talk to clients about um, a sort of wave kind of motion of highs and lows rather than having very high peaks and troughs. And is it the carbohydrate like load, if you're getting that all distributed at one time um, in the day, is that associated with like I think some of my really basic biochem knowledge was like glucose and carb very much associated with like pulling in water molecules into cells and things but like what's the mechanism there of like tying to increase urinary frequency like is that well known in the science of like why that's happening or an association certainly an association the science is we're still learning all the time about it but yes like from that rudimentary explanation i guess it's a clearance system, I guess, yeah. of the body. Like when the body feels that it's needing to clear, you know, whether it's toxins like alcohol or, you know, sugar from the bloodstream, it's trying to clear itself by bringing fluid in. Yeah, and then often in the community you'll run something like a, uh, a chart and you can see those clear associations of like someone might run a toileting schedule or a chart and, and then you make a change and then you can see that objective change in the outcome as well, which is often really meaningful for the person as well. Of They can clearly link that, okay, this dietary change that I've made has clearly made a change in this meaningful area of my life and Toileting is often like a really meaningful area if you can make a change, like in terms of stigma, in terms of um, cost as well, obviously, even though there is support there in terms of incontinence aids, but um, being able to feel comfortable socialising, um, going out into the community, uh, there's a lot of impact that urinary frequency and incontinence has so anything that you can do there um, for somebody um, is dramatic so for those of you listening when you're hearing somebody talking about incontinence or frequency just the trigger I would prompt you to have there is consider thinking about the risk factors for diabetes is there a diagnosis for diabetes already but also consider 
has a dietitian been involved in supporting this person recently? If not, a dietitian referral should be discussed with that person. Thoughts on that? Strongly recommend, I would suggest. While we're on it, I would also look at whether that person is drinking water or not. Because often when people are experiencing incontinence, they try to solve it by not drinking any water. And then we see hospital admissions from dehydration, UTIs, that sort of thing. So that's sort of um, quite an easy thing to ask someone, you know, how much water do you drink? Um, Just as one of those alert things that you might flag. Yeah, and people can chart that as well. You don't need a fancy printed out chart or branded by your company and just get them to write it on their notepad hey over the next seven days until i see you next time can you just write down how much water and tea and coffee and just how much you're having and they don't have to measure it out in total meals they can just a cup or something at least it's going to give you an idea as an aerial point of view um yeah i love the as you can tell i love these sort of deeper clinical topics just it gets people thinking in that way of I sort of always like to be clinically suspicious or like sometimes I think of a topic of, and I don't know if it's, I probably should look if it's someone's coined the term, but like clinical anxiety, sort of always like to feel like I'm missing something when I'm out in the field, not that I get to do it much anymore, but um, yeah, I always like thinking that way. Like what else could there be? Um, Let's just jump to a different topic now that's probably somewhat of a topical topic. Is type 2 diabetes reversible? Yeah, I would agree. Um, Bit of a tricky one to answer. I don't really love the term reversible. Um, It's more of a question about management of the blood glucose levels. Um, When I knew we were going to have this discussion, I did a little bit of digging myself. Oh, look at you go. A little bit of preparation. (laughs) I love to prepare, as you know. Um, Yeah, I was really interested to find out that between 1980 and 2014, the number of people living with diabetes across the whole world increased from 108 million to 422 million, and 90% of those having type 2. So it's just a really huge figure to me that makes me yeah, think, it's enormous. how did we get here? And, you know, we've got all this new technology, but yet the pharmacological interventions, so the medication for type 2 diabetes, is not doing anything to stop this rise. So would I say it's reversible? Probably not. However, it can be very well managed. So currently there's not a cure. Um, In some cases, I guess you could call it a reversal where somebody is living without any medication. That's sort of the aim. I was just about to ask that. Like, let me just say it another way for people listening then. Are there people that are supported by dietitians, typically leading the support of diabetes um, in consultation with GP and things? But um, are there people that manage with their diet and, and meds but eventually find themselves with that diagnosis but not needing insulin all the time. Does that happen? Absolutely. So that's one of the key 
roles that dietitians are out in community trying to do, supporting weight loss if that needs to happen or um, just dietary changes to, um, like I said before, with the timing and load and distribution, that person may never need to go on to medication. So if we can avoid that progression onto insulin, that's what we're there to provide the support for. Yeah, and with that, like just thinking about the role further, like I think sometimes I think like for those of you listening, you might not always know that but like I'm a physiotherapist, so I always think sometimes people don't know, they don't know what a physiotherapist does. Um, Mm -hmm. And around diabetes, I'm very much would be thinking about like working hand in hand with a uh, dietitian. I'd be looking at looking at the physical activity, are there impairments that are limiting physical activity, someone's maybe an older adult with frailty, falls prevention, balance, trying to improve um, and grade up their exposure too. But with um, dietetics, tell people more about what dietitians actually do in the community. Like what's, what's the role? Like I think let me make it easy and I'll throw physiotherapy under the bus because I can because I'm a physiotherapist. People will just be like, oh, what do you do? Just like massage people? Like what is it, a bit of exercise? And obviously, well, okay, there's a, lot, there's a huge scope of practice that we can do. Where do I start? Where do I finish? So what's the role scope of a, an accredited practising dietitian for someone living with diabetes? What do you do? Yeah, so the dietitian will help the person manage their blood sugar um, by assessing the diet that they have and providing some education around food choices. And that doesn't necessarily mean we give them a diet plan. I just want to put that out there that not all dietitians need diet plans. There may be nothing wrong with the foods that they like and enjoy, but we may just talk about load and distribution of those things. Um, so we're just helping them with their food choices. It might be skills building, like label reading, which a surprising amount of people in Australia do not know how to do. Um, so yeah, I've so definitely of- had older adults before that I've suggested a dietitian referral and they're like, what, they're going to come out and tell me to eat vegetables and fruit? And then I have to chunk down further and be, and that comes down to like why podcasts like this is important and just any education on um, multidisciplinary management. If you need to have an awareness of scope of practice so that when somebody maybe has that um, aerial view of a profession or societal view of not really understanding how the profession um, can help. It is your role and your responsibility as a, a healthcare worker in any role to have some understanding of scope of practice of other clinicians so that you can provide them some level of informed knowledge. That's not mm-hmm. that your response there needs to be, oh, actually, the dietitian can help you manage, even if it's something simple, oh, dietitians can actually help you control your diabetes better. That may be enough for that person to engage. If you've got further knowledge, well, then you could chunk down further into carbohydrate load and all of these fancy things. But just Mm -hmm. sometimes not accepting that face value answer from a consumer, but not also dismissing that as a silly answer because you don't want to break trust or rapport with somebody as well. So, um, yeah, what other things do you you look at? So... 
while we're talking about the rapport kind of version, I think dietitians are just so well placed because what I find often when somebody's just been diagnosed, there is all sorts of emotions happening for that person. There's fear, there's shame, there's guilt. You know, some uh, GPs don't have the best uh, bedside manner and, you know, may have been... And the model's very time-limited often from them as well, whether that's controlled by, they may not exactly be in a position to change the time structure of their day to uh, about six minutes, uh, blood blood glucose, um, you've got diabetes, um, here's your dietitian referral. Best of luck. Yeah. There's maybe not some softening skills there (laughs) or just time for it. I'm not knocking GPs at all, but, like, (laughs) yeah, if you just tell someone you need to lose weight, you're diabetic, it's a very hard message to hear. And it's very difficult for anybody to change your behavior. If you think about any goal you've had in your life and wanting to do something routinely to get yourself to that goal, that is hard. And you may have several of those. So it's not enough to have that one appointment in the GP. That person may need fairly significant counseling and they need it to come from someone who really understands the condition and isn't going to cast more judgment on them because it's not going to create change. I think something that I've something that I've learned along the way is like I think some of that like educational complacency I would call it from health professionals of where you don't spend as much time educating or in a manner that's not maybe highly engaging. So people talk about, like, you know, motivational interviewing where you're just you're really connecting with someone to try and get the message across. I think it often just comes across from the point like you're a health professional that sees, let's just say you are a dietitian supporting people living with diabetes and this is the 1500th person in your career that you've said the same thing to. And you just it can get complacent. You're like, yeah, it's diabetes. Everyone knows about it. You've got to lose weight. The, I reframed that for myself clinically as a physio a long time ago where I always remember that the person in front of me and the education that I'm giving, and let's make it more physio-specific for me to be easier to give an example, that's falls prevention. I'm really passionate about falls prevention clinically, but... Um, which makes it easier when you're passionate about a topic. But I just remember that that person in front of me, that's the first time they may have had the opportunity to have this given to them. And I need to remember that and not reflect on the fact that, oh, my God, I've said this a million times before. Why hasn't the world changed? Well, humans are a one-by-one interaction species. So even though messages come across um, as groups and things. Often meaningful change happens at a one-to-one level. You need to understand people's meaningful goals and really get that information across to them. So, um, and you look at some of the research that comes out from what do consumers say they valued the most out of their healthcare experiences. That's almost always the education time that was given to them by the clinician. So, And, yeah, you can look at some nice sort of studies out there where people compare education to 
maybe more active interventions. Um, and you often find that the education becomes the strongest piece because that's what's creating the long lasting change there. So I just like to jump on a little bit of a harp about certain things, but I think that's a re really important topic. So we'll move on to something a little bit more topical around maybe COVID-19-ish, and maybe you can speak to if you've seen some of these things, but I'm sort of just thinking with people being more at home, um, how has that impacted alcohol consumption, but just food consumption in general? But let's jump on the topic of alcohol first. Um, how does that impact blood sugar levels and um, in and around diabetes? Yeah, so it's recommended that anybody who has diabetes uses caution when they're drinking and ideally limits their alcohol consumption because it can increase complications related to diabetes. Alcohol impacts the liver, which further impairs its capacity to do its job of regulating blood sugar. Um, also for certain um, people who are on insulin um, or diabetes-related tablets, the alcohol may actually increase their risk of having a hyperglycemic event, so low blood sugar. Um, it can be really risky if you, you know, are on insulin and you have a night of drinking and then go to bed and then that low occurs during the night when you're asleep. So you wouldn't have any warning and could potentially slip into a coma. It's very, very serious. So, yeah, so a real, a real clinical yeah, and, concern. You know, with yeah. the lockdowns that have happened, um, I'm not up on the stats, but it has been reported that alcohol consumption all across Australia did increase. Um, I'd be interested to know how they're getting that data because it's been a little while since we've had any kind of census survey, but um, somebody out there is surveying people to find out. What about anecdotally, like just reflecting on your clinical services over the eight, last 18 months compared to then periods before that. Have you seen just any changes in things that you can notice, like different eating practices, different types of food, like anything? Yeah, that you've I think from my experience with alcohol consumption, my clients haven't necessarily reported that they increased their consumption. They probably changed the location, so they're drinking more at home. But what I did notice simultaneously was the lack of exercise. So we now went from, you know, moving about between venues maybe or going out for a dance and possibly burning off the alcohol and anything eaten during the times of drinking to being very inactive and drinking alcohol. So it sort of shifted the focus of importance of like, yes, we need to obviously get physical activity back to normal guidelines. And there are normal guidelines out there if you're not aware of that everyone so that you can look up the Australian physical activity guidelines um, and each country 
tends to have their own standards, but they're very similar. Um, like one piece of that is 150 minutes of moderate physical activity a week. And there's underlying things in there around strength and balance, especially for older adults too. But um, yeah, we want the physical activity up, but in the presence of decreased physical activity, it shifts the focus even more so onto um, adequate um, nutrition and um, yeah, the role of um, the dietitian in supporting diabetes. Um, just conscious of our time and also listeners' time, um, even though I, yeah, I think one of my things is I can just chat about things all day, tend to be passionate. Um, around diabetes, people listening, they need more info. Where should they be heading if they're like, oh, far out, like I've found myself, um, I need extra information. Do they go to I don't know, Diabetes Australia, like where are their resources? Yeah, you could go, go to through? the Diabetes New South Wales website. It's just www.diabetesnewsouthwales.com.au. Um, there's some fantastic NDSS resources out there and also they have a helpline, um, 1-800-637-700. Um, and all clients who have diabetes should register with the NGIS because, you know, things that prop up like those six-day plans will be there, able to be downloaded or used on their mobile devices, a um, lot of free information, 24-hour helplines for somebody who may be experiencing diabetes distress, um, if you're not sure about registering, I would have a chat with the GP about it. And to clarify there, that's the NDSS, the National Disability yes. Services Scheme, just so that we don't get everyone going, I've got diabetes and community therapy on the podcast said that's the NDIS. So ndss.com.au national diabetes services scheme and australian government initiative we'll put that in the resources i think that's something that probably some people may not be aware of and that's a really important one especially in roles of like coordinators across ndis but also across um, aged care packages and um, through to other community programs, residential aged care. It's really important that you know those sort of central um, bodies um, and associations that have that really evidence-based practice models of care and, and, you know, not free resources, but government-supported resources, which are technically often free, but thinking them of a way of, like, that's the appropriate avenue to um, get assistance. So... Wonderful. It's been a great episode. I really like this balance in the podcast of um, clinical topics and we've got some great ones coming like around sort of jumping on diabetes. There's one coming soon on like um, from a wound um, nurse, which will be really interesting, chunking down further and there'll probably be some um, diabetes-related wound conversations there. But, yeah, thanks so much for giving me your time. Thanks for today. having me. It's been great. You're welcome. And thanks to everyone out there listening to today's episode of the Community Health Podcast. Um, main takeaways today, I think refer to the show notes for the bunch of resources, but always around clinical topics, just reflect on your knowledge around scope of practice of how other professionals can support that diagnosis or condition um, reflect on your knowledge so within your own scope of practice or your role 
do know all of the things that are your roles and responsibilities so that you can serve that person that you're serving. That's always really important. Um, show notes for today and takeaways and things will be on the website, communitytherapy.com.au, and you'll see the podcast menu item there. Until next time, be well, take care of yourself, and I'll give you a sneak peek at the end for those that are clever enough to end. I'm playing around with podcast intro music. Hopefully you can hear that music. I don't mind it. you got to keep it fun on the podcast. Let me know if you like that music. Might do it in some of the intros coming up. Uh, definitely listen to far too many little 10 to 15 second uh, podcast intros, but I, that's the best one so far that I've found. Um, all right, take care, be well, and talk to you soon.